Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm delighted to have as my guest, Dave Abbott, Gary Mitchell, and Jill Robbins. I'll let them introduce themselves. But today, we're talking about strategic pricing and lifetime customer value. Dave, let's start with you. Hi. Good to see you again, Marcus. And uh, hello, Gary and Jill. My background, I've got a... um, uh, I've got a background in corporate where I've worked in a variety of different industries. Uh, the two core roles that I've had over the past couple of decades have either been running businesses of a variety of different sizes, from startups through to UK brands of major global companies, and taking senior marketing roles. About 10 years ago, I decided to do all of this for myself. What I do right now breaks down into two things. One half of what I do is I'm a portfolio marketing director. So I work with clients. I help them, help them to figure out what their marketing strategy should be, how they execute it, how to develop and improve marketing competence within the organization. And the other half of what I do is I talk about pricing for a living, uh, you know, I run seminars, uh, work with organizations to help them improve their pricing, and I've written a book about pricing. Which is nutshell. fabulously titled... <laughs> how to price your platypus. <laughs> I'm um, not going to forget that in a hurry. No, absolutely. Fabulous. <clears throat> Gary. Hi. Uh, hello, everybody. Uh, nice to be back on Marcus, the Marcus show again. My background is started as an engineer, went through factories and the supply chain, taking part in every transformation fad there was going from just in time to total quality to... Uh, oh, everything, and ended up in the middle of my career rescuing big IT transformation projects. And so I got to poke my nose into a lot of areas that other people don't get to poke their nose in through ERP uh, implementations. And that somehow led to me writing uh, business plans for private equity-backed businesses, either to prepare for investment. I seemed to be the only guy who could speak the language of each member of the leadership team and for some reason they don't seem to be able to talk to each other sometimes also um where they need to create a new strategy which is they they are in trouble of some degree or other and they need to come together to understand how they move forward so that's what i do now gary's middle name should be the like johnny the axe because uh, he gets people to do things that they otherwise would not do. And he's very robust, which is a joy to uh, behold. Jill. Yeah, so great to be here. Um, Nice to meet you, David and Gary and Marcus. Good to see you again. Um, So Jill Robbins spent over 20 years in the corporate world with Fortune 100 companies, consumer packaged goods, as well as pharmaceuticals, life sciences, been in Lean Six Sigma and global procurement, as well as corporate finance investment banking and spent some time in purchasing operations. So I hear the pains, Gary, of speaking the language with ERP implementations and talking over, under, and through one another. Um, I can definitely relate to that. So after being sold to for 20 plus years by some of the largest companies in the world, um, including technology companies, as well as many other indirect suppliers, I decided to help companies and suppliers that are selling to and through procurement and supply chain to do so effectively. So I teach them how to become procurement insiders so that they can speak procurement's language and focus on the value deliver that value, not just talk the talk, but actually walk the walk. So I've been having fun doing that. My clients are seeing a lot of success in working with procurement. Um, Procurement really is not the enemy. And I teach them how to make them their ally. Okay, so I'm going to ask each of you a question that none of us had planned for. But uh, as you were talking, it uh, struck me as a great question. So talk to me about your best experience as a buyer engaging with a seller. Jill, can we start with you? Yeah. So, you know, those that do their homework and truly understand the business, understand opportunities and issues that are on the table, those have been my best um, experiences. And specifically, 
there's one that came in and it it happened. It was a very commodity based business. So it did boil down to price, but it was total cost of ownership. So quality, speed, value, getting the right products in the hands of scientists. And they were not, they knew their competition very well. And they were very willing to have a dialogue. Hey, how can we win this business? And it was a long-standing supplier we'd had for close to probably 15, 20 years. Um, so it was not an easy transition, but that salesperson, that company came in eyes wide open um, and ended up taking over almost three fourths of that business worldwide. And that was a 15 year incumbent they displaced. Yes. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Yeah. Do, do Slowly, you give them yeah. a name check if you like? Yeah, so I'd rather not. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. <laughs> Dave? On a similar theme, this isn't just one thing, but um, over the past uh, decade or so, when I've been working with clients, one of the things that I've noticed is that when we're, when we're going out to procure a service, so it might be uh, because of the marketing background, it might be somebody who needs a new website or somebody else who's after an exhibition stand or somebody who's after you know marketing automation system or whatever it is. Uh, we've generally whittled things down to two or three really good-looking options, uh, any one of which uh, can probably do the job. And then, of course, uh, we get them in and we'll have a meeting with each. And I can't think of a single time out of all of these occasions where we've gone for the cheapest. What we've done every time is we've gone for the company that got us, that understood what we were trying to achieve. And one of the key lessons that came out of that for me is that Let's say it's web development. We're down to the last three. I'm going to make the assumption that all three of them can develop a website, that they have the the technical capabilities. That's a tick in the box, you know. I should bloody hope so, like. Yeah, exactly, you know. (laughs) And yet, a lot of the time is spent standing up there and telling us all about their skills and this fantastic thing. And they talk a lot about what they can do on the assumption that's relevant to us, you know, it's what, what we can do to you is what they're implying. But what I want, want to hear is, okay, we understand what you're trying to achieve. We can work collaboratively with you to make sure that you get the outcome that you're, you're after. And the reason why I was thinking about this recently is I've been working with a firm of uh, lawyers helping them with pricing. And I was looking at one of the, the bids that they'd lost yeah, well, one part of the uh, the organisation, they'd gone for this major opportunity and they'd lost it. When you looked at the proposal, it was clear that there'd been some exchange of emails between them and the potential client. And the potential client had set out half a dozen bullet points on things that they knew that they needed. And the proposal document started bullet point one. Here's a, you know, line after line after line, we can do this, we can do this, we can do this. You know, we, we'll approach it this way. Here's the price. Bullet point two, we can do this, we can do this, we can do this, you know, and here's the price. What was missing was the, the first bit. At no point did it say, we understand what you're trying to do. You're trying to reorganize the business so you can sell off this part of it, or you're trying to exit it, or you're trying to raise capital, or you're trying to do whatever, you know, and we're behind you. We're here to make sure that you achieve your goals. I just think that's a huge gap uh, when it comes to... Uh, people who are selling, it's a huge gap if they don't think about that, put everything into, into the context of why it matters to the buyer. I think you're up next, Gary. Yeah. Um, my best buyer engaging with the seller, I guess, was when I came to uh, work with a private equity business, a cycling manufacturer, uh, cycling retail business, I worked with the original private equity business before the value has been destroyed by a couple of private equity business, and now it's owned by Mike Ashley. I shall say no more about that. I wasn't involved. It's not, <laughs> not nothing to do with me. I was with the original. But what we were doing is we were trying to select uh, a retail ERP system, and we were trying not to engage with the traditional time and material, licensed time and material approach that software vendors uh, tended to come forward with at that time because basically it's an open-ended invitation once you've signed it for them to milk you of money for the next three years. So 
I was asked what the alternative was, and basically it's quite easy. You strip out their discovery exercise from their contract, which they want to do and they want to run, and you take control of that and you strip it out as a separate exercise and you get their technical representatives and the leaders of each function in the the retailer to actually design the future business at the customer journey level. And what you get, and and it takes a lot of post-its, so it's not for everybody, you know, it's not within everybody's pocketbook. Use a lot of post-its, design the business, and it's a retail business, so it's not that complicated, everybody, you know, you, you kind of guy walks into a shop, what next, what next, what next? And you simply point at each step and look into the retailer technical people's eyes, and you can tell whether it's A, standard, their system does it easy, or, you know what, they're, they're not sure whether they can do it. And in that way, what you do is you can very easily, by replacing the yellow sticker with the red stick, you find the areas of potential risk, transformation risk, and implementation risk in the business. Because the other side of it is you might create a step and then the internal IT roll their eyes and then you know that they haven't got the data, the database is full of shit and blah, 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 and it's going to take a long, a long way, a lot of effort to do it. And to cut a long story short, what you do with this is you split the contract into 80%, which is standard and can be priced, almost fixed price, and then a set of shared risk items Yeah, where you, you both know there's risk and you work out how to share the risk. And you might say, well, that, you know, give me an estimate, and I realize it might be a bit more. But what that enabled me to do was to show the board that this is how the contract is, is uh, you, you know, instead of having 100% of the cost at risk, 85% is locked away, and then 90, uh, 15%, i got my math right, uh, <laughs> 15% is where the risk is, and we understand that's in 10 areas, and we, we have these actions on these 10 areas, and then the board go, right, it looks like a good thing to do. And it was very brave of the seller to take part in that because that totally contradicted their time and, their time and material business model, and, and it wasn't their way of doing it. And they, weren't, they were reluctant <laughs> at the beginning, but once they could see that we were trying to define a journey that they would be involved with all the way, and, and it was risk. They How hate did the they conflict. feel about it at the end? Yeah, they were good. It, it gave me milestones. The other thing it gave me is milestone payments, mm-hmm. very, very clear milestone payments because we had, we'd almost written the test script at the beginning. So we, we kind of understood where the finishing line was when they configured the system and then when we did the testing and then when they were pre-launch and then there was payment milestone. They didn't like that too much because I, I withheld a bit of money at times, but then mm-hmm. that stops them taking valuable resource to other to other clients. It's a question of sharing risk and sharing control. And if it's time and material with the software seller, then you've given away all of that. Yeah. Whereas if you have a shared journey and you are very clear at the, you know, even if you don't know, quite know where the finishing line is, you need to guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because otherwise you're on, the, you're on the way to an infinite journey. Yeah, and it's good that both parties have skin in the game. And that's what I've seen, Gary, is that's most successful because usually both parties are to blame at some point. And then both parties can collaborate and pat each other on the back when things are going well. And we had something that we'd built that people could point at where they were having a problem. And that helps us not get emotional about the entire project, but to say, you know what, we're emotional about this tiny picking process in the warehouse. And let's talk about that. You know, the whole thing's fine, but it's just we've got a problem here. And that that then keeps everybody from the board downwards calm. And people do their best work when they're calmer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's my story. Excellent. So what I'm hearing, though, throughout 
all of this is that your safety as a buyer is paramount. The, uh, the vendor, the seller, putting you at the heart of whatever activities they're involved in is key. And they need to be reliable. They need to be relevant. And they need to be responsive. Mm-hmm. And if a vendor or a seller fails on any one of those counts, then chances are you will become closed and guarded and you will enter into defense mode because you don't want to fall into the trap of making a poor decision. But these strong vendors are focused on creating a long-term partnership. They are focused on the customer, not their own quota. They establish strong and sustainable agreements that will weather the test of time, that will allow you to fight and argue constructively and will facilitate or will survive change. And they're deeply collaborative. And together, you co-develop the solution because they've listened, they've done their research, they're asking the right kind of questions, and it's never really about price in a real selling situation, even when it comes to commodity. Is that a fair summary? Yeah. Yes. And, yeah. and I think, especially with systems implementation, it's never really about price. It's about safety because the whole business is at stake. My example, I had to force the vendor to actually collaborate because we didn't want to do an RFP. We didn't want to throw it out and have all that bullshit going on. We chose the vendor that we knew from other people gave a decent solution. And we said, right, they've got all the pieces. We can walk into shops where it's in action. And I guess what I'm saying, Marcus, is as a buyer, you can actually force critical vendors into this process if you need to. And sometimes you need to look after your own safety. But obviously, it's better if the buyer you know, that's what I was doing in that situation. I was looking after my safety because I care about my safety. Um, <laughs> ideally, the vendor would be the one who is coming across as, as trying as to bring the safety. Again, I think one of the most important shifts in my thinking over the last couple of years is the realization that customers do not buy products or services. They buy, or they, rather, they rent outcomes. Mm-hmm. And the outcome must still be relevant for them to continue buying. So in Jill's example, chances are that vendor came up with a solution that was more appropriate for the, uh, where your business was at that moment. And they demonstrated that relevance and that value to be able to deliver those outcomes that you needed for now and to future-proof your business. Would that be fair? Yep. Yep. Definitely more scalable. They had better global coverage and their service was better. So again, we know from experience that customers will often stick with vendors where the experience isn't great, but the outcomes are on the money. They will drop vendors whose experience has been great, but the outcome is no longer relevant. And they will stick with vendors whose experience is not great, but the outcome is on the money. And so the challenge is to maintain that communication. And Dave, I know this is a a subject very near and dear to your heart. If you are not communicating with your customer throughout the life cycle, pre-purchase, during the purchase, where people are identifying what their options are, then when they get to that stage where they've got three viable vendors, what they're doing is they're making trade-offs at that point. If you haven't communicated your value and you haven't listened to what they need, chances are you'll get lost in the trade-offs. So I'd love your take on the importance of communication in order to maintain good pricing. Yeah, because it's a lot of organizations, you see them put a lot of effort in uh, in the early stages, you know, Pre the sale, obviously that yeah they're trying to secure the opportunity with the uh, the customer. Uh, then there's some implementation phase. They're all over that, uh, and there's the honeymoon period and they're talking to them regularly. But then you see after 
four or five years or three or four years or whatever it is, the whole thing starts to tail off a bit and uh, the customer's perhaps taken for granted. Or there are more exciting opportunities. There's some new great big thing that's uh, just around the corner and they've got to put all the sales team and all the effort into securing that and that, that's where all the time and attention goes. And the, the older client, the one who's been there three, four, five years, starts to feel neglected. They're, they're not being reminded about what value they're receiving. You're not having the meetings with them and maintaining that relationship. And they reach a point where they suddenly decide that they can find better elsewhere. This raises another question. Again, not strictly down to pricing, but Jill, I'd love your take on this. And Gary, based on your experience with these transformation projects, I would love to understand the kind of conversations you have with your vendors about how they compensate their sales team and uh, yeah, the entire because yeah. <laughs> compensation drives behavior. Yeah. Uh, to feed off Dave's point, if you compensate heavily for the win, but not for outcomes being achieved for consumption, for adoption, for extension, yeah. upsell, cross-sell, renewal, mm-hmm. referral. So I'd love to get your take on that. Jill. Yeah. So I would say win is loosely defined <laughs> because it's if the customer's not winning and just because you met your quota, who cares at the end of the day because that will corrupt your brand longer term. So you really have to have a multifaceted compensation model, um, not just for meeting a monthly or quarterly quota, not just for closing, you know, the the first deal in a new vertical, for instance. Um, I have a client that's breaking into, you know, a couple different new verticals and they're willing to sacrifice in, in a few areas, but you still have to make the customer happy longer term because that critical success criteria is going to be different for some of those customers and the ability to cross-sell, to upsell, to expand. And it's a software company. That's absolutely critical, Marcus. And I I think that sales is just so ingrained in this commission, this deal closing, this contract signature, and they have to focus on, well, did we meet milestone one? Did we meet milestone two? Is the customer truly happy? Are we delivering value as we articulated in the initial business case? And what I would also say is work with your customers. If you're having a hard time getting over the finish line, whether it's an executive cell, whether it's a cell within a component, build the business case with them. And if you can't help them build the business case, you don't deserve the business, in my opinion. 100%. Because, <laughs> because the customer shouldn't have to do all of the heavy lifting to no. get your ass in the yes. door. You should be doing that heavy lifting with them. Then you will deserve to have that business. And then, you know, you'll be able to then expand and they'll then become a referral. It, it leads to, it's a snowball effect. Absolutely. Gary, your thoughts? You know, if you go back to ERP sale or software sale, you know, if you look at what the customer is looking for, it's all about safety. Okay, so it's vendor say it's system safety. Safety, you know, will this system work? It's vendor safety. Is will this vendor be around for the duration of the contract and stable, and 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 I'll, or I'll be left unsupported? And it's transformation safety. You know, how easy is this damn thing to get into my business and working? It's safe to say that the majority of salespeople I have met do not share this objective. Safety. <laughs> right? It's safe to say. Now, the, the technical people may do, but it's safe to say that zero salespeople I met shared my safety objective, which is why I had to force them into the process. And then if you expand that thinking, and I ask you a question, and I'll ask the two guys a question, Who owns customer success, right? And what you will find, and now I'm going over to my fintech experience, you find nobody owns customer success because what happens, as David was articulating, is we put a lot of effort into communicating on sale and then actually the salespeople piss off 
and the implementation people come in and have to learn all over again what the customer wants, mm -hmm. which is a waste of energy, then there's a lot of effort goes in there. And then they piss off and the support people wait for the phone not to ring. It's a silo approach. And success in the support phase is the phone not ringing. Yes, absolutely. That is absolutely criminal because actually that phase is where the customer realizes all their value out mm -hmm. of your software and actually understands whether indeed they're a fan of what you do or what you've given them or not and understands after two or three years whether they're going to resign, right? Mm -hmm. So actually, this is your entire cost of sale and your chance at being a hyper-growth company. You're, you're just throwing away by actually taking your eye off the ball and going chasing other balls in the game. So I'm going to bring Dave in on this as well, but uh, Gary, I'd love your take because of the work that you do with private equity executive compensation measurement and culture drive the behavior of the organization. If you think about the culture of the investors, if you think about the focus of the investors, their, their focus is typically on their exit. It's not on the customer's success. And the problem with that is that that executive culture will ultimately drive the performance and behavior of the sales team. And so my question is this, if you're dealing with an organization that is controlled by either the market in terms of institutional investors or investors like private equity and venture capital, is there not a massive argument for rethinking the way those people are compensated and measured and the business model of the investors in order to drive buyer safety. Gary. Yeah, the well, the compensation approach is, you know, first of all, the culture of the business, there's a the silo approach that I talk about, right? You've got to get, you've got to knock that out of the culture. The silo approach has got to go. It's got to be a more collaborative approach. The second thing is the type of people. So in the silo, the salespeople are hunters. The customer success people are farmers. And the hunters get all the money. And actually, if the farmers are shit, the hunters get more money because there's more hunting to be done because you've done a shit job at farming, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So the hunters get all the kudos and all the, all the money, and, and this is holding the culture back. Now, I'm not saying you go hunting with a load of farmers, but you might, you know, I'm a farmer's son and, you know, I'm a shit salesperson. But give me a cow, I'll milk it, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you got that right and you didn't say give me a duck and I'll milk, milk it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've got off topic now. But, um, yeah, no, there's... But actually, it needs more thought, is all I'm saying. I don't, yeah. I don't come with an answer. But that hunter-farmer, the hunter dominates, the hunter gets all the... I'll, I'll come back to that. Let me bring Dave in at this point. So, Dave, your thoughts? I 100% agree with uh, what Gary's just said. And uh, the, the wrong incentives can drive some very perverse behaviours. I think another problem that I often see is that that incentive is based on the wrong measure. Often gross margin, something like that. If margin's mentioned at all, you know, even worse is when it's just top-line sales. And, um, and then they go out and they'll find any old rubbish, no matter what the margin, and you know, it's simply because that, uh, that, that, that's money in the bank for them. But even when they are measured on margin, it might be gross margin, and they're, they're more than happy giving away this discount here or that discount there to get the business without really understanding the impact on the, uh, the bottom line. So you know, fundamentally agree with everything that, uh, that Gary's just been saying. But uh, just coming back to the start of uh, your question and uh, you know, where we got here, the, I, I think part of the attitude for the organisation is, the, and I don't think I'm the first, I'm sure I've heard this said elsewhere, but you've got to be re-winning the, the business every day. You know, it's, it's, it's that kind of mental attitude. Because and where this circles <coughs> back to price is that you mentioned value-based pricing at the, uh, the very beginning. 
I love value-based pricing because you don't want to be treated like a commodity. But you've got to be clear about what your value, the value is that you're going to deliver. You've got to communicate that continuously and demonstrate that continuously. So if your attitude is about re-winning the business every day, and part of that is talking to them and demonstrating the value that they have received, you know, the outcomes that they are enjoying, then you are continuously justifying the price that you have charged them. Why it is an appropriate price, and it might be higher than the competition, but aren't you glad that you're paying a little bit more than mm -hmm. you would have done with the competition? Because look at the fabulous service, look at the outcomes, look at the measures, look at everything. Yeah. You, uh, you made the right decision. Uh, Barnaby Winter describes a customer, a customer is a C word in his world. And he says, only refer to them as paying prospects. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. that, I think, is a really healthy mm -hmm. attitude. And part of the problem is most salespeople, in my experience, sell and run. They do a drive-by yeah. shooting. And even though many organizations in tech have moved to a SaaS-based model, software as a service, the paradigms haven't shifted despite the fact the context has. So you still got management driving one-year deals, three-year deals, five-year deals. So it's perpetual license with a bow on it. So there is no incentive there. And I think one of the most important lessons that I've learned is that you have to have a regular cadence of accountability. And it goes both ways. You know, you hold the customer accountable, they hold you accountable, and it, you meet on a regular basis. There needs mm -hmm. to be that rhythm uh, to the relationship, because otherwise you cannot possibly be listening and answering the question, what comes next? Mm -hmm. yeah. And that is critical. So, Jill, let me bring you in on this. In terms of creating those long-term strategic relationships, how, what, role does price pay in terms of identifying a vendor that you want to work with over 5, 10, 15 years? Yeah, you know, it depends on what you're buying and it depends on the organization, right? We've talked about different behaviors with different procurement people. And on the onset of the call, we talked about, you know, public procurement. So, you know, all of that aside, you've got to focus on the value and it cannot be sales at any cost. I've worked for organizations and it's been sales at any cost. I've coached organizations and that is a recipe for disaster, whether it's, you know, short-term, mid-term or longer term, you know, you cannot take that approach. You've got to work together and to build that long-term relationship, you need to have those check-ins, you need to have those milestones. Both parties need to have skin in the game and understand what the priorities are, because at the customer, those priorities are going to change based on internal factors, based on external factors. You know, there's been research done that only 13% of customers believe a salesperson can understand their needs. That's a problem, right? That's um, a damning indictment. It's not a problem. <laughs> yeah. It goes way beyond a problem. Right, right. But I, it's a reality, though, that so many people have experienced. So mm -hmm. then, you know, it that then puts procurement, you know, on the defensive and they are going to squeeze on cost rather yeah. than look at value. Just chipping in, that goes right back to what I was saying at the beginning about buying from people where it feels like they understand you. The vendors that, uh, that we chose were the ones who clearly got it, what we were trying to uh, achieve. The, the reason I wanted to uh, chip in when you were finished was uh, talking about all of this, it just makes me think about another aspect of this, because I think we all ought to consider that there are two elements of value. There's the organizational element of value. So the, the company, the, continue, the, the paying prospect or the customer, whatever you want to call them, but the, um, the customer, they're, they're buying something from you. They're going to get some value from what you, uh, you deliver. There's a personal element to it as well, you know, which might be risk from the point of view of the person who makes the decision or the opportunity to gain a promotion or something like that. There's a blog I was reading where the guy was the managing director of a big name brand in whatever the particular market was. He and this sales guy went in to meet a customer 
and the, the their product is used on the manufacturing line. It's uh, it's it's not consumed. It's part of the uh, the machinery that runs the uh, the manufacturing process. And he's about to start talking to the ops director about why his product is the the right one. And the ops director you know, put his hand up and said, "You can stop right there. You don't have to say anything." Your Italian competitor was in here a couple of months ago. I know he's 20% cheaper than you, but I'll never buy from him because if anything ever goes wrong on the line and I bought his product, my job could be on the line. If I bought your product, I know I'm safe. So it just illustrates there's more to value than just adding up exactly what the organization is going to get from it. You've got to think about the people within the organization as well and what value means to them personally. Absolutely. I've got an apocryphal story on this. One of our clients was selling against a big German software company in the ERP space to a German company in Germany that had been using this German product for 15 years and everything ran on it. And they were a competitor. And he was invited to respond to an RFP. Wasn't going to because he figured there was no point. And this is the exception that proves the rule. And his boss told him, you've got to be in it to win it, lottery mentality. So he put the uh, quote in at rate card. A week later, he got a little brown envelope saying, congratulations, you've won. So it's 3 million euros. Eventually, the guy had left and he'd moved to another company and the, uh, the CTO had moved to this company as well. And he said, Hans never really understood why it was that you uh, chose to buy our product. And he said, well, I don't have an Oracle implementation on my CV. And uh, up until that point, I needed one because I wanted this job. <laughs> so he bought because he wanted, the, you know, and unless you understand, I've got another really good example, yeah. a big outsourcing deal. Uh, this is back in the 90s. A friend of mine, Nick Aiton, was involved. And he took the CEO out uh, to get him drunk and uh, discovered that the real driver was the uh, share options. And so he had to have a strategy in place and then had a conversation with him. And they ended up doing a management consultancy piece that drove up the value of the share options. And they ended up winning the outsourcing piece as well. So human beings do not buy for the most obvious reasons. And often the purchase is driven by personal motivation. So, Jill, you're looking horrified as a procurement professional there. Uh, let's bring you in at that point. <laughs> Marcus, it happens all the time. And I'm not surprised. I've seen so many executives, you know, cherry pick McKinsey or, you know, name your marquee consulting firm. And, you know, it, it's they will pick who they like, who has taken them to the best golf course, who has taken them you know, on the best adventure or, you know, name your incentive or your motive. So definitely does not surprise me. But I do think that companies and if COVID has done anything, it's put some pressure on companies in ways that maybe they didn't have pressure in the past. So I'd say that's a good thing. It's got to be the outcome-based pricing. It's got to be, you know, value risk-based, if it's a marketing service, if it's an agency, what are you doing to drive those top-line sales? And if you don't have skin in the game and you can't tie your good, your service, your SaaS solution to improving the business productivity, to eliminating processes, then you don't deserve to win the business, in my opinion. And you've got to ask those tough questions. And you know, we've heard examples today um, from Gary on, they chose someone who they'd done their homework on, who had done successful implementations. That's the name of the game. Procurement talks to other companies. There are very open forums and they, they will get the good, the bad, the ugly on you and they will have done their homework. So if you've not done your homework and you can't differentiate yourself from your competition, you don't deserve the business. That's a common theme in your responses yeah. about earning the right to win business. I think it's critical that vendors understand that buyers want to create value mm -hmm. and they have limited time and finite resources. 
and they want to make the best investment for the future as well as for now. And they want to, uh, to build on uh, Gary's point, they want to uh, prevent anticipated regret and blame. And I, I recently interviewed a friend of mine, Andy Shaw, and uh, he's a CEO, and uh, he made the point that if I don't feel safe, then at the 11th hour, I will bring up the subject of price because I expect you to carry my risk. I expect you to pay for my risk. And again, this is where so many salespeople fail because they listen with happy ears and they think that just by turning up and strutting their stuff with a PowerPoint, which has a picture of their beautiful overpriced headquarters, you're going to be wowed. That's not the case. You have to listen. You have to make sure that you mitigate risk because every business is trying to manage time, money, and risk. And mm -hmm. to build on Gary's point, they don't care about risk. What they care about is certainty. They and do. the minute risk is involved, that's where the, uh, the price conversation starts getting vicious. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I would add to Marcus that it's about innovation. It's about automation. It's about, you know, having sound data at the end of the day, if it's an ERP implementation. So there are a lot of different factors and I can share a story. You know, I, I negotiated directly with McKinsey, edict from the CEO and edict from the CFO. This is who we're using they're going to coach us on how to, you know, build this business, grow this business, integrate these businesses. And I said, they're going to have skin in the game. We're going to have milestone pricing and the CFO directly get this done. Okay. Well, get it done at what cost, right? 10, 20, 30, $50 million. But I'd worked with them in the past as we all have. They hated me because I pushed them and asked the tough questions and yes, they had skin in the game. Well, lo and behold, guess what? 12 months, maybe not even 12 months after that deal was signed, where I did ensure there, there were milestones and skin in the game, they got fired. If we had not done that due diligence up front and I had just done what the CEO and the CFO said and bend over and did exactly what McKinsey told me, we would not have had an out. We would not have had any recourse. So Procurement has a line of sight across the organization. They understand how the silos should be working together, even if they're not working together. Even when executives have pressure from, you know, outside investors and, you know, all of the extenuating factors, that's why you've got to build that strong relationship with procurement because they do have insights into the company that a lot of components do not have. Well, this then raises a very interesting book to my memory. Uh, it's called Dangerous Company by Charlie Madigan. And I think it's Patrick O'Shea. It's out of print. You can only get it secondhand, but it is a must read if you ever deal with any of the major uh, consultancies. Oh. And it's how they took $300 million businesses and turned them into $3 million businesses <laughs> in three years. And made 20 plus million in the process. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I remember going to meet, uh, when I was in recruitment, I went to go and meet the um, managing partner for McKinsey in London. And I asked him, so what, what's your ideal customer look like? And he conspiratorially looked over his shoulder and he got up and closed the door. And he said to me, ideally, they're a new chief executive and they've got an idea of what they want. They've got a vision, but they've got a hostile board. And so they bring us in and we write a thousand page report at a thousand pounds a page. And then they say, McKinsey told us to do this. Mm -hmm. And then it sits on the shelf and gathers dust. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm sure that not every McKinsey project is like that, but that was, that really opened my eyes to the game that's afoot. Because um, more often than not, I think some of these larger brands not only are trading on their brand name, but they're also trading on inertia. There is a very strong argument to build on Jill's point. If you want partners who are innovative, who are forward thinking, and are asking questions like, what are the jobs that you're trying to get done? What progress are you trying to make? What are your struggling moments? How 
do you make money? How do you uh, achieve your outcomes? How do you become successful? What do you need next? And how can we help you get it? If you're not asking those sorts of questions, then again, I don't believe you have the right to play. It comes right back to where we started. You've got to, you've got to understand. You've got to get it. You've got, you've got to ask those questions. It can't be, it can't be a shallow kind of relationship. You've really got to get under the skin. So, in terms of creating lifetime value, so that you can justify the higher price and the customer feels happy and safe paying it, Dave, I'd love your thoughts in terms of that cadence of accountability and communication that's required and some advice that you can give to people right at the outset of the relationship, at the first transaction, to set the scene, to make sure that that uh, kind of cadence is in place. You start off, obviously, by listening and understanding. And uh, I'm assuming here that there's a one-on-one relationship in uh, terms of the, the customer that you're trying to, uh, to get uh, and work with, uh, rather than um, uh, you're a distributor and working with one-on-many. But, uh, but if it's one-on-one, then obviously you, you've got to start by uh, really understanding. Actually, it's worth talking about the, uh, the, the one-on-many just briefly. Just as an example of something I came across uh, recently, you ask a good question there about communication and price. I was working with an organization. It's a fairly large distributor. And when I talked to the sales team about why people buy from them, the list were things like, we've got the broadest range, the products that we stock are very high quality, uh, we ship them, uh, yeah, they all arrive next day, we've got a fabulous telephone technical service, we've got a long list of reasons why they were better than anybody else out in the marketplace. And then when I looked at the, the communications, their regular weekly, monthly communications out to the customer base, every single thing was at lowest price. It was from this, only that. So they had one message or one value proposition, but an entirely incongruous message. That's what you've got to get right. So I think that that's the fundamental answer, whether it's uh, you, you know, one, one of you and many customers or one-on-one. It's making sure that your message is congruous, that you're, you're communicating something that reflects your, your brand and the value that you're delivering. And you're doing it in terms that make sense to the the customer as frequently as is appropriate for the customer um, in language that the customer understands. It's pretty basic marketing, really. But you do all of that right, and that helps to justify why they made the right decision working with you in the first place. I interviewed the CEO of West Coast, which is a very large distributor. They've grown from 800 million to 3 billion, not very large, but large, to 3 billion in um, a year. And Alex Tatham, the CEO, spends 50% of his time with their key customers. All of their salespeople spend time with their key customers. The executive team, their marketing team, their technical team spend time with their customer. And uh, the net result of that is that they have a close partnership. It's not that they're just turning up and shifting product. They're not the cheapest out there. But they're always focused on the customer's outcome. And so, again, Gary, I'd love to bring you in on this because I I want to tie this in with the whole piece around the customer story and the customer journey. Customer journey, yeah. Because I know this is an area that you always start with when you're dealing with strategy. Yes. What we're seeing here, what we've been talking about is the old attitude and it, 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 it's not only in, in software, it's in many other areas. The build it and they will come attitude. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So we've got this thing. And what we do is, is we find companies talking about it. Now, I do a lot of business planning with tech, tech entrepreneurs and tech companies. And, and you know what? They say, well, you know, it'll be all right. We'll just put these other functions on and we'll build this and we'll build that. There is no... There's no voice of the customer there. And actually, I'm going to use two examples. And one example is a, is a fintech I've been working with last year, payments processor. And if you, you're talking about payments processors, now you, you, you're looking at somebody, uh, their client, Starling Bank is a client and Revolut is a client and they're big banks, right? And customer success for them means growth. Mm-hmm. It means 
getting to profitability. So what, you know, can I connect this payment solution to things, products that will make me profitable like lending and, and credit cards and stuff like that. But actually the interesting, the more, it, so you have to price according to, to, to where you are in the cycle because the interesting side of the cycle is right at the beginning where you've got a small fintech, a fintech somebody's thought of a, I don't know, a shirt that you can make payments with. You know, I don't know, I can pay with my shirt. And, and, and they've, they've got, and, and what we found is we've got to get those people to market very quickly so they can actually have a minimum viable product and, and proof mm -hmm. of concept. And what they always find when you prove your concept, you find you've got the wrong concept. So you need to adjust the concept very quickly and add features and you need to, to grow a community. And what we found is if we're not part of that process and if our company and the way we behave disconnected at the moment that they signed the deal. So we had to price so it was low, low barrier to entry. And then, and then, and then, hope to get the money back on the transactions. And it was like betting on a number of horses because they yeah. all didn't. But we had to actively take part and help them succeed because we got the best results. So we got return, and, and there's the value sharing. And as they went up the curve, and actually, one of the companies is called Curve, and, and they've <laughs> they've gone up the curve, and and. You know, you start pricing differently because you can't actually, you have to take your per transaction charge down because it's too high. So, in effect, you have custom pricing as you go, but you have to share the journey and you have to stay with them. And as David says, you know, you, you, you have to be with them and meet with them. The real issue is that you have to stop focusing on your own product and focus on what they're doing. And that, for me, was a massive lesson for me because my nose was rubbed right in it and I, I kind of, I, I had to learn. And now I'm with a big software, a banking software business, and we're doing strategy. And you know what? It doesn't matter how big a business is, they're still in the build it and they will come attitude. And they're still trying to, you know, they're still trying to imagine that banks want software. And actually, banks don't want software. <laughs> what banks want, is a lower cost of transactions. They want to get the, off the bloody legacy systems that are killing them cost-wise, and they want to leverage their capability to other institutions, corporates, and, and, and banks that want to offer financial services. Now, that isn't a, I've signed the software deal, and I'll piss off trouser my bonus and leave them, and then they're done. That customer success journey is years long, right? I'm going to get off legacy. So actually, you need to position as I'm the, I'm the person who can take that shit you've got under, under, in your shed at the moment, make sense of it, and plot our way out of that journey and get you on the cloud. I've got a really radical and uh, unfeasible idea, which is that customers should sit in on board meetings. <laughs> yeah. I like this, yes. Yeah. And I think also some customers that you didn't win should sit in because I think you've oh, got to see fantastic point. you yeah. need both sides because you lost the business for a reason or didn't win it. And then you've kept the business for a reason. So I think there's a lot to be learned on well, both sides. Um, Salesforce did some research last December. And one of the really interesting bits of output was speaking to unhappy customers and customers mm -hmm. who didn't buy mm -hmm. speeds up your product development cycle by 600%. I like that. I, I do agree. It's both, though. There are a lot of organizations, they automatically, when, when, they, when they lose an opportunity, they will, there will be a, some diagnostic phase afterwards where they'll contact the customer, they'll, they'll, they'll try to find out what you know was it the price was it the spec was it this was it uh, whatever it is they'll do that but i almost never hear of a company who does does that when they win an, an opportunity but isn't that just as valuable <laughs> what was it about our presentation and, and us and all the rest of it that made you want to buy from us no that that's that's a good question to ask as well uh, absolutely and in fact with all of the companies i'm working with one of our first initiatives is to go out and get the customer story and understand the whole journey that got them to this moment. So what caused them to even consider 
making the purchase? What options did they consider? What did they disqualify? Why did they buy from us? What are the results they've had? Are the outcomes um, satisfactory? And in fact, Matthew Sweezy taught me what can only be described as the best customer experience survey. And it's three questions. What got you to this moment? Did this experience meet your expectations? And this is the kicker. Have you seen better? Mm. Now, what I'm teaching my salespeople to do is at the end of every conversation uh, with a, a prospect or a customer, how did I perform today? Did it meet your experience and have you seen better? And then they have to take the lesson. Really important. Yeah, key questions. Sadly, we've come to time, which I'm heartbroken about because I could have carried this on for hours. So one final parting shot. Gary, let's have one from you. It's interesting you're talking about the customer journey because I don't think, firstly, I think businesses end the end their customer journey too early because they they go, well, I've I've sold to them, fine, and now I'll hope they don't call me again. Whereas actually the enabling part of the customer journey, everybody talks about customer advocates and then leaves that to marketing to go and engage with the customer inauthentically. If you walk through your customer journey, and this is how I build strategy, I look at the current customers and talk about the current customers and where the growth is, but also look at the business. And I include the products in the customer journey right at the beginning. So you've got the products. And how do you, who do you talk to about them? How do you talk to them? Do you, how do you convert? How do you engage and, and deliver service? And what do you do after that? If you talk about each section of the customer journey, you will find that you have a better conversation with the people within the business. And you will find that the people in your business really know what could be done in each part of the customer journey to transform your outcomes or the customer's outcomes in those parts of the customer journey. Yeah. And what I'm basically saying to you is I, I, my job's really easy. I just talk to people, but I structure it. So they talk about things that they don't talk about with each other, which, <laughs> which are the customers, their own customers and their own customers' experience and outcomes at each part of the journey. And you know what? The strategy kind of falls out. And what you've got, all you've got to do then is to make some choice because you can't do everything. And you've got to choose what, what's the most important five things you need to do. And that, my friends, is the secret to strategy. That's my final thought. Thank you very much. Excellent. Thank you. Jill? <laughs> yeah, I think just to build on what Gary said, you know, you've got to keep the customer front and center so have that open dialogue, ask those open-ended questions. What does good look like? What are you happy with? What are you unhappy with? What can we do better? What do you like about our software? What is you know difficult about our software? And the best advocates you can have to sell your product are at your customers. Mm -hmm. So if you position yourself in a positive light and you've signed the contract, you don't walk away, you've got skin in the game, you care about the implementation, the outcomes, the success, you will win. And you can charge more because your, your value is higher than your competition. So I, I think if you have a lens on making every customer happy and making them your advocates, so then you can maybe have less salespeople and your customers can actually advocate for you, that's a win-win all the way around. So I think, you know, having that mindset is where businesses need to go. I'll build on that in a moment, Dave. I think some really good points there, the build and everything that we've been saying about uh, understanding the customer. I'll finish on one about uh, pricing, which is uh, don't talk yourself into thinking that the lowest price is the most important thing. I'm not saying that price isn't important you know in any negotiation obviously it is but too many companies end up thinking that the only thing that the customer cares about is the lowest possible price and it's much more complicated than that there are many other factors and a, a couple of short examples that kind of back that up i was talking to one manufacturer of a piece of equipment that was part of a production line very specialized piece of equipment 
and they had 20% market share. There was another small company with um, 10%, and the German company that had 70% of the market share. The German company was the most expensive in the market as well. And yet, this company that reckoned they had a superior product Mm -hmm. thought that they, they had to have the lowest price in order to get the sale. And there's evidence that 70% of the sales in that market are at a higher price, and they're still persuading themselves that it's the lowest price that gets the sale. Mm-hmm. So that's one. The other is um, talking to an electrical wholesaler where everybody within the organization had got into the habit of discounting. It had just become part of the culture to the extent that you could walk into their trade counter, pick an item off, off a shelf, walk over to the guy behind the counter, put it down, and he'd look at you and he'd say, I can knock 10% off that for you. (laughs) My mind's boggled because you had the sale. You had the sale at the full price. And then right at the end, you you, you just gave 10% away for no good reason. But in his mind, it was a good reason because the guy behind the counter was conflating good customer service with giving money away. And that's not what good customer service is. Good customer service is all the other stuff. It's not about just giving away some money. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so, that's fantastic. So let me tie all of this together and put it in the context of running a sales operation. If you charge a lot of money and you make good profit, the prospecting tariff, for those of you in sales who absolutely abhor prospecting, mm-hmm. you have to do a lot less of it. If you keep your customers, you don't have to replace them And so you have to do less prospecting. Your cost of sale goes down. Your lifetime customer value goes up. Your profit per customer goes up. The amount of time that you get to spend in front of a customer goes up. Many people will be surprised by this, but actually when they reflect, they won't be. I regularly see salespeople who don't see a customer from one day to the next. I regularly see salespeople who are selling over the phone, who might speak to two customers in a day if they're lucky. So you're spending all this money on sales salary costs. You're spending all this money on marketing to try and get these opportunities into the funnel. And you're blowing it because you're uh, focused on the wrong end of the problem. Mm -hmm. The customer, while price is important, it is almost never the real issue. And if you give away margin, because 10% off the list price is more than 10% of the margin. So you're giving away a great big chunk of your profit and you're under pressure to grow your business. Why on God's earth would you choose to give away margin, time, resource, and perfectly good opportunity through acts of idiocy and stupidity because you're not asking the simple basic question, why the hell are we doing this? So on that happy note, Jill, how can people get hold of you? <laughs> Jill at businessfierce.com or you can find me on LinkedIn. And I love what you said, Marcus. And I think every time a salesperson discounts or gives away margin, that should come from their compensation. Agreed. Pound for pound, dollar for dollar. <laughs> yes. Um, again, I, I've made that part of the, uh, the compensation plans. If you give away a pound in discount, you have to pay for it. Yeah. Dave? Get me at david at davidabbotspeaker.com or on LinkedIn or just Google platypus and pricing. And one way or another, you should find me. (laughs) That's the more memorable way. Gary? That's the one that people remember. (laughs) Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. If so, if you Google Gary Mitchell transformation or Gary Mitchell... uh, strategy or something like that then you'll get me on linkedin and my website is gary-mitchell.com excellent thank you all been a pleasure thank you very much thank you thanks for for inviting us cheers excellent so if you're the owner or ceo of a tech company in the 10 to 50 million mark and your goal is to grow your business and achieve real sustainable profitable hypergrowth with highly engaged and highly productive employees across your entire revenue operations and customers who stick with you year after year and pay premium, then let's schedule time for a brief conversation. My email is marcus at laughs-last.com. 
And you can contact me via direct message on LinkedIn. We've recently launched a global community called Sales A Force For Good. Our mission is to remind us that we exist because of, not in spite of the customer. And our job is to serve them and help them deliver their outcomes. We're aiming to raise the selling profession and make sales an aspirational career choice and make it better for the next generation of salespeople. If you're interested in that, follow the hashtag ProCustomer or hashtag SAFFG or get in touch with me and uh, please volunteer with tackling some of the gnarliest problems in sales. For example, what has to change in terms of executive culture, compensation and measurement for any positive improvement in sales to be sustainable? What uh, is what passes for good in sales fit for purpose? Does compensation drive bad sales and management behavior? All sorts of stuff like that. So look forward to speaking to you soon. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.